The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll uh, remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, this is page 399 if you're using the, I'm sorry, no, number 976 if you're using the Pew Bible. And we're focusing on verses 13 through 14. I'm going to go ahead and read from verses 3 to 14 just to give us the context. Once again, these are wonderful words. We've heard them before. They've been preached to us. But let's listen carefully again and think on these things and worship the Lord in the way we receive his word again this evening. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in uh, verse 3 and until verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. Purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's look to God and seek his help as we look to his word this evening. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord God, we again indeed look to you asking, Father, that you would come to us, bless us. We bless you for your word and ask, O Lord, that it would be for us again a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Would you come to us by your spirit, Lord, and enlighten our our minds that we might understand and open up our hearts, that we would receive your truth. Father, give us much grace that we might see and hear and trust Jesus and that we might live out of our union with him and walk that path of righteousness to which you've called us in him. Hear us, Lord God, for we ask for this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I do bring you greetings from the the saints, your brothers and sisters at Zion. It was a privilege to be down there preaching the word to them this morning. I was having fun with them and joking with them about the fact that it was very strange, of course, to be a a guest preacher uh, for those 
we all know and love so well and don't feel like a guest. But uh, typically, when you welcome a guest preacher into your pulpit, you might expect to hear something of a recycled sermon. We preachers often dust off old sermons and re-preach them when we're invited to preach in new places. I sometimes feel bad about doing that. It's kind of like you've been, you know, you're 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 uh, you've offered to bring a meal and you go into your refrigerator and you're warming up leftovers. And uh, I said I feel bad about that at times, but never quite bad enough not to do it most of the time. But I said, you know, I'm not doing that this morning. I'm actually preaching to you the sermon I prepared to preach at Shiloh this evening. So you're the ones getting it hot and fresh out of the oven. They're getting the leftovers. I bring you leftovers from Zion this evening in all seriousness. And in one sense, you know, we we would have that attitude of those who, thinking particularly of the message of Ephesians, the fact that we are Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, we are happy to see ourselves as those receiving the leftovers of the kingdom. And in one sense, we ought to see ourselves like the, the Canaanite woman, that Syrophoenician we read about in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 15, who is happy to count herself as a, a dog, content to receive breadcrumbs, falling from the table. And yet, and yet, when we read this first chapter in Ephesians, we find that the opposite is the case. Certainly, certainly such should be our attitude. But we, but we read this chapter, and we, we, we find that, that even before the foundation of the world, we were in the heart of God. We were chosen and predestined. Even then, it was, it was part of God's plan to, to include us in that great plan to be revealed in the fullness of the time. We, we are not leftovers. We are not afterthoughts in the mind of God. We've been loved by God from all eternity, and we feel that in this wonderful passage of Scripture. We've heard it preached, what marvelous worship and praise. We've, we've heard this is the third of three sermons where we focused on the different persons of the Trinity. This, this worship is very much Trinitarian, and so we've focused on the way that, that it was, uh, that the, the different persons of the, the Trinity played their different parts in our salvation. It was the Father who chose us and predestined us to be adopted. It was the Son who came and, and gave himself to his blood to be shed on the cross for our redemption. Well, this evening we're focusing on the third person of the Trinity, the, sp- uh, the Spirit. And really, in doing so, we're really focusing in, in on our present possessions of the blessings of the covenant, the, 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 our possession of the kingdom even now. And I think we see that as we consider the particular verses before us this evening. This evening's message is stated very simply like this. You, believers in Jesus Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, hear that well this evening. Wonderful truth for us to consider. And as we consider and unpack that message, we're going to do so under just two main points, uh, two main points which he ha- each have two uh, subpoints. But the two ma- main points are simply this, that God has claimed you as his own and God has given you claim upon him. We might say it this way, God owns you and God has given you to own him. Amazing truths. Consider that first point then, that God has claimed you as his own. That's our main point. Two sub points are this, that you are God's 
possession, and secondly, so the Spirit preserves you. We could say you are are God's possession, and you therefore will continue always to be God's possession until at last God possesses you in glory forever and ever. But you are God's possession now. His seal is upon you. What does it mean that God's seal is upon you? There are different examples we can find in the Bible where things are sealed, and this can kind of help us understand what God has done for us. One example is when an important document was prepared for uh, or by a king or written at least on behalf of a king, it might that document might be sealed with the king's own stamp and seal, and even by his uh, by his official seal, maybe even stamped with his signet ring. We think of the time that, uh, that Esther, Queen Esther, was able to save the Jews when she was able to prepare a royal decree in the name of the king, a written document in his name, which she was given permission to seal with his ring. When, when, when the Apostle Paul speaks of, of our being sealed, he's not, he's not speaking of a kind of visible seal. God certainly has given us visible signs and seals of his covenant in giving us the sacraments. But these are really signs, pictures of what God actually does by his spirit. This text is teaching you that God has sealed you by his spirit, and he has put his stamp, he has put his claim upon you. You are his. You belong to him. He has claimed you as his own. Do you know that this evening? Think on that. These are precious truths we all know so well, but truths which we need reminded of again and again and again. It was certainly true for the church in Ephesus, and we need reminded again this evening. As we look at these words and think about them as they first came to that church in Ephesus, I think we see that, that, that Paul was directing these particular words, that of our verses this evening, to the Gentile believers. We remember how according to to God's great redemptive historical plan, the gospel went to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, as we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. I think that's the very order which we see reflected in this part of this chapter in Ephesians, particularly verses 12 and 13. We read in verse 12 that it was the Jews who were the first to hope in Christ. Paul includes himself in that. We who were the first to hope in Christ. But here in verse 13, our text, he speaks to how the Gentiles also received the gospel. He writes, in him, you also. In him, in Christ, you also. There's Gentile inclusion. This is such an important message, such an important theme, which which Paul will pick up on again in a big way in chapter 2. But I think we see it even here with this language of God taking ownership of us, taking possession of us by sealing us with his spirit. You know, if the Gentile believers here had had any doubts about the fact that they truly did belong to the Lord, they belonged to Christ every bit as much as those Jewish believers did, well, this kind of language should have powerfully served to dispel any doubts about that. 
Under the old covenant, God had, had promised Israel, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, that among all of the peoples, all of the peoples of the earth, Israel would be his treasured possession. You will be my treasured possession, God promised. And there was a condition attached to that promise. You will be my treasured possession if you obey my voice and heed my covenant. Of course, that if, if you will obey my voice, if you will faithfully follow in my covenant, that, of course, is is such a reminder of Israel's great need of the grace of the mediator. We know that Israel's story showed the story of, of our sin and our need of the grace of Christ. Israel failed to keep covenant, and God in his grace responded to that great sin problem in sending Jesus into the world. Jesus is the one who came and showed himself in every way to be faithful. Jesus is the one who, who embraced that, that role as God's treasured possession. Jesus is God's treasured possession. And the, the one thing we certainly learn in this, this chapter is that our possession of the blessings of the covenant, our status as God's uh, treasured possession is only because of Christ. It's only for those who believe in Christ because through faith the Spirit unites us together with Christ. And so we've seen, as we, as we've seen in the, the, the previous sermons, we see that, that language that speaks to our union with Christ. In Him, in Him, we've learned that we were, we were chosen in Him. Verse four that we have redemption in him, verse 7, that we are included in God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him, verse 10. We have an inheritance in him, verse 11, and that that inheritance theme continues in our text this evening. Not only was Israel privileged to be called God's treasured possession, but God also called them his inheritance. And we think about how, how he delivered the people out of, out of Egypt and he promised them that inheritance in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. But we might, might ask the question, well, what was God's inheritance? Well, God says, my people, you are my inheritance. We read in, in Deuteronomy 4.20 that Israel is called a people of his own inheritance. In fact, he called them his portion. You know, we think back when, when the land was being divided up and God was sectioning it off and giving the different, the different sections, the different portions to the different tribes, the different clans and families. Well, what about God? What was his portion? God was not interested in a, a piece of land. What God was interested in was the people. And so the Bible says that the Lord's portion is his people, Deuteronomy 32 verse 9. Think, just think on that. We are his portion. We are his inheritance. We are his, we are his, we are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. That's what it says. If you look down in verse 18, the riches of God's glorious inheritance, which is the saints. Just think on that again this evening. We are God's inheritance. 
But what did God do to lay claim upon his inheritance? Not only did he lay claim upon us in, in, in choosing us and predestining us before the foundation of the world, and not only did he do so in, in giving Christ to die for our sins and purchase our redemption, but he has done so in what we read in the text this evening, sealing us. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. When did this happen? Well, we, we, we read, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. Paul, Paul's point here is not to give kind of a, a time sequence, you know, that you heard the gospel, and then at some point you believed, and then at some point the Holy Spirit sealed you, uh, you know, at some point after that. That's not the point. We, we, we know elsewhere that the Bible clearly teaches that it's the Spirit that enables us to believe. In fact, we know that the Spirit uses the Word to work faith in us. We're told that, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It's the Spirit who, who opens up our heart and enables us to believe. That's what the Spirit did in the heart of Lydia. We read about that in Acts chapter 17, how she, the Spirit opened up her heart to pay attention to the things that Paul was saying to receive the Word. And so Paul's point here is not to, to set up sort of a time sequence. His point really is to emphasize the truth that every believer, everyone who has truly believed in Christ has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that worked faith in our hearts has sealed us such that we belong to God. The gift of the Holy Spirit belongs to every believer. You know, it's not kind of a, a second blessing which is given only to a super class of Christians, you know, some, some special blessing that, that comes later. No, it's true of every believer. If you're sitting here t- tonight as one who is truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's true of you. He, perhaps you have a great vivid memory of when that happened in your life. Perhaps you don't remember when it happened. Perhaps the Lord worked, you know, in more of sort of a process and over time brought you to faith. Or perhaps you grew up in the church. You're a covenant child and you look back in your life and you don't even remember a time when you didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise God, whatever the case, right? We praise God if that's true. But if you're here believing, the important thing is, are you believing right now? And if you are believing in Christ, then it's the Spirit who has given you that faith, and that Spirit has sealed you. God has claimed you. You are God's possession, and you will always be his possession. The Spirit who has claimed you preserves you in Christ. There's another kind of thing we might call to mind from the Bible in terms of things which were sometimes sealed in the ancient world. Do you remember remember after uh, Jesus was crucified and how the Pharisees, they went to the governor Pilate, Pilate and they were, they were concerned about something. They said, you know, this imposter, he said that if, if, he were, if he were put to death, that he would rise again on the third day. And we're afraid that his disciples are going to come and they're going to steal away his body. And then they're going to go and falsely proclaim that he's been raised from the dead. And you remember what Pilate did. He assigned a guard of soldiers. And we're told in Matthew chapter 27, verse 66, that they, they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
sealing the stone. It was sealed with some kind of moldable substance, clay or something like that, which was actually stamped with the imperial seal and attached to the stone with a rope. And so if you were foolish enough to risk your life by trying to get by those guards, and then you were to go and break that seal, well, you were defying the emperor himself, Certainly, surely you were going to come under his wrath if you were caught. Uh, all this to say that, humanly speaking, that tomb was very, very very secure. And yet amazingly, it didn't prove to be so secure after all. And why is that? Well, we know the answer. There's a power infinitely greater, an authority much greater than that of emperor, the, the emperor himself, and greater than all of the Roman guards, greater than any, any sealed tomb or stone, the power of Christ and his spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. But just think on this this evening, brothers and sisters. That's the same power by whom you have been sealed by the, by whom you've been sealed, sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. If that doesn't cause you to feel safe and secure in Christ this evening, I don't know what possibly could. We might say it this way. You and I, we've been entombed in Christ forever and ever. No one will ever be able to break that seal. You are safe. You are secure in Christ. You are under the protection of Christ. Some believe that one of the reasons that that Paul was making this point to the Ephesians was because of the, the 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 pagan spirituality that existed in Ephesus and the fact that so many feared the power of spirits. You know, they feared uh, they lived in fear of magical powers. That was a very common thing in the in the the Greco-Roman world. It's a very common thing even today. We, we, we witnessed that where we lived in Africa. There were those who just lived in the fear of spirits, and so they would wear amulets. They would wear uh, uh, bracelets and, and necklaces and, and earrings, which they believe afforded them kind of special powers to protect, protect them from harmful spirits. Well, it's that kind of pagan mindset, that world where, where the gospel had broken in and Paul was encouraging the believers, don't trust in those things. Don't trust in the powers, in magical powers. Trust in the power of Christ. You are sealed with something far greater than any kind of magical charm. You are sealed with the Spirit of Christ. I don't know whether or not that's what Paul's particular concern was in these verses, as some argue, but certainly an important truth for us to remember this evening. We are not to live in fear. We're to live by faith in the God, the power of the God who has sealed us by his spirit. He has claimed you as his own. You are safe and you are secure in him, dear Christian. There's more that I want to see in terms of what this teaches us about our doctrine of perseverance, but we'll see that as we move to our second point, that is that that not only has God claimed you as his own, but he has given you claim upon him. God owns you, and you own God. Almost sounds blasphemous to say that, but, but that's true. If God has given you claim upon him, caused you to possess him, and we see that in our text under this last point, we have two subpoints. And it's first that the, the spirit guarantees your inheritance. And secondly, you possess it. That is, you possess that inheritance now in possessing 
the Spirit. Because the Spirit guarantees your inheritance. Really, what the text says is that the Spirit is the guarantee. That's what we see there in verse 14. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What does it say? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? So the, the Spirit is the guarantee of what is yet to come. We think of that time when when God had delivered Israel out of Egypt and he'd promised them that inheritance which they would acquire in the land of Canaan. They had not yet received what was promised. They had to live by faith in what would come and they had to be willing in faith to endure the wilderness sojourn. Well, on on one level, so it is with us, right? We're not yet in heaven. We yet yet look forward to the day when we will at last acquire our heavenly inheritance. In the meantime, we endure the wilderness sojourn of this present world. And it's not, not, not pleasant, is it? We face trials, trials that are sometimes so great that we were tempted, tempted to doubt the presence of God, tempted to doubt that God really is bringing us to, will give us what he's promised. And of course, on one level, well, his word ought to be enough. He's promised it's true and we ought to believe it. God cannot lie. But to think that not only God has promised, not only has he promised it by his, his word, but he's given us the spirit as a guarantee. That, that word guarantee there can also mean first installment or pledge or deposit. Can imagine maybe if you were you were selling a car and I came to you saying I want to buy your car. Maybe it's a seller's market. I'm afraid someone else might want to come and buy it up instead. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you some money. Here's a deposit. I'm giving you a thousand dollars. Promise me you won't sell it to anyone else. But by giving you a thousand dollars, I'm giving you a promise. I'm I'm giving you a guarantee that surely I will give the rest of the money. Well, God has given us a a promise, a guarantee in giving us the Spirit. The Spirit is a deposit. God has, in giving us the Spirit, promised, I will give you all that I have promised you. And as I mentioned, these words, again, they they speak so powerfully, don't they, uh, to our doctrine of perseverance. You know, we, we, we believe that true Christians are eternally, Secure. We believe that once saved, always saved. Now we don't, we don't believe that the way some wrongly conceive of it. There are those who think, well, once saved, always saved, no matter what I do. We were out sharing the gospel downtown on Friday night and there was someone who was, had clearly inebriated and walked by and, 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 and he yelled amidst his expletives. He was saying, I know I'm saved. My, my dad's a preacher, and I, I received Christ when I was 12 years old. Kind of like, I, I'm, I'm eternally secure. I, I'm, I have the hope of going to heaven when I die, and so I'm free to live any way I want in this life. That's not the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, is it? The same Holy Spirit that, that grants us true faith changes our hearts and he causes us not only to believe, but to live that life of holiness, that life of good works, which God has ordained for those who truly believe. The truth is that, no, we don't go to heaven by our good works. We don't earn our way to heaven by good works. But we won't go to heaven without good works. 
And those who have the hope of heaven, those who have that guarantee, those who are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of their inheritance, the same Spirit preserves them and preserves them on that path of faith and obedience as they await their inheritance, as they consider uh, continue on their pilgrim way. And that's the hope that we have if we belong to Christ this evening. We must persevere, but we will persevere because we've been sealed by the Spirit. The Spirit preserves you this evening, even as you await your inheritance. And just think about this. As you trust in the Lord, as you walk with the Lord, waiting for your inheritance, you already are laying hold of and possessing your inheritance. Just just think about this. This is our, our second sub-point. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait for our inheritance, do we? In one sense, we do, but in another important sense, we don't. We don't have to wait for our inheritance because God himself is our inheritance, and God has given himself to us in giving us to possess him, in possessing the Spirit. Just look again at our text and see how we see this truth in verse 13. Notice what what Paul writes about the Spirit at the end of the verse there. What he does not write is that the Spirit is the one who assures us that God will give us what he has promised, though we know that's certainly true. The Spirit does that. But what actually what Paul actually writes here is that the Spirit is the one who was promised, right? You were sealed with the, the promised Holy Spirit, you have already see, received the thing. You've already received the one, the blessed one, whom God had promised the Holy Spirit. Just think about that. We think again about what God has promised, all of the blessings of, of life and glory with him forever and ever, all that God will give us, all that he will do for us, all that is in store for us for all eternity. What's the best part of it all? It's God himself that we will be in his presence, that we will own him, possess him in glory. One theologian famously put it this way. This is Gerhardus Voss. He wrote, the possession of Jehovah himself by his people will be of all the delights of the world to come, the chief and most satisfying, the paradise within, the paradise of God. Can you say amen to that this evening? God himself, he's the paradise within the paradise, and you already have been given him, given to possess him this evening. That means that the the age to come has already begun. We know it's already begun. The age of resurrection began in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The age of being possessed wholly by the Spirit has already begun and that we have been possessed. We possess, we've been possessed by and we possess the Holy Spirit. One commentator put it this way. The Spirit is the intrusion of the new creation into this age signaled by his being promised and now given. Amen. The Holy Spirit promised and now given, poured out upon us by the resurrected Jesus Christ. We have been sealed by the Spirit. What wonderful truth. 
truth that in some ways is so so great so uh, so transcends our ability to comprehend we can't wrap wrap our brains around it and yet we don't have to fully understand it but simply embrace it by faith and glory in it own this truth even as god has owned you and made him to be your own in christ jesus you belong to god and you will belong to god for all eternity. Let that encourage your hearts this evening, uh, brothers and sisters. Let it give you a, a sense of great purpose and hope in your lives. Maybe some of you need to hear that this evening. Maybe the trials that have come into your lives have have, have left you feeling a bit discouraged. Maybe you feel a bit like, well, what, what purpose do I have, right? There are times when we we, 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 we have a uh, it takes everything just, just to get us out of bed in the morning, right? What am I living for? What's my purpose? What am I doing here? Perhaps you're struggling with trials, and, and frankly, truthfully in your life, you're not living particularly mindful of God's presence in your life. You don't live impressed by this truth that you've been sealed by the Spirit of God. The reality is we know God's there, but we don't always feel like God is there, do we? Well, don't trust your feelings this evening. Trust what God has taught you in his word this evening. Trust the word of God, which has come to you. Trust the God who has sealed you by his spirit. Brothers and sisters, he's given us so much, so much better than microwave leftovers this evening. He's given us himself in giving us the spirit. Sealed by the spirit. Lift up your hearts. Cheer up, you saints of God. Say with the hymn writer this evening, why should cross and trial grieve me? Christ is near, near by his spirit. Christ is near with his cheer. Never will he leave me. Who can rob me of the heaven that God's own son for my own to my faith hath given? Believe those words this evening, dear Christian. God is near. He has sealed you. He will never leave you. So cheer up. Wake up each day with a great sense of purpose in him. Pray to him, right? Sing to him. Commune with him. Live in his presence. And certainly certainly that will build you up in the hope that you belong to him and that he is bringing you unto glory. Your life is not without purpose and meaning. You are part of his plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. You are part of God's great plan to bring glory to himself. Indeed, there's one part of our text that I left out this evening, and that's the ending. Why has God done all this? The end of verse 14 tells us why. To the praise of his glory. That's the third time that we see those, those words in this section, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. That's the way our text ends, brothers and sisters, and that's the way your life will end, in glory, in glory, to the praise of his glory. So look to Christ and realize your chief end to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. May God give us grace to do that. Let's pray together. Father, how we bless you and praise you that you 
have given us the wonderful gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that the same Spirit who has sealed us as your people in Christ Jesus would come to your people again this evening. Father, bless bless your church here. Bless the saints of Shiloh Presbyterian Church. Father, thank you for our great salvation. We pray that even the word that we have received this day would so richly dwell in us and encourage us and build us up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ that, yes, we would live for the glory of your great name. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen.